are listening to the Traditional Outdoors Podcast. This episode of the Traditional Outdoors Podcast is sponsored by Great Northern Bow Company. If you're a bow hunter, you're a descendant of a very old and very long line of independent, skillful, and resourceful human beings that reaches back to prehistory. You may not think of yourself as a rare breed, but you are. Bow hunters who use longbows and recurve bows for their hunting are a breed of part. They form a personal connection with their hunting equipment, especially their bows. At Great Northern Bow Company, they design and build every bow with you in mind and with respect for the long and noble hunter-gatherer lineage we are all connected to. They build hunting bows, bows designed to make you the very best bow hunter you can be. How do they do it? By paying attention to what really matters in a bow. Stability, smoothness of draw, reliability, performance, refined design, and by using carefully selected materials. Their bows have an understated beauty and refinement of appearance that will make them hold their appeal for a lifetime. And they still build their bows one at a time by hand. Now, Great Northern Bow Company could build fancy bows, they could build souped-up bows, or they could build bows and make impressive-sounding claims about them. That isn't what they do. They build real-world bows for the real world of bow hunting. If there are any claims to be made, you will be the one to make them. And you'll make them based on the confidence and success you'll experience through many years of hunting with your Great Northern Bow. So consider making your next custom bow a Great Northern Bow, and in the meantime, be sure to check out their website at gnbco.com. Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm your host, Steve Angel, and Nick's taking a night off tonight, but I've got a couple of very exciting guests joining me this evening. Tonight, I'm joined by Mr. Ryan Gill of Hunt Primitive, and many of you may be more familiar with Ryan from Gill's Primitive Archery. And also joining us is Morgan Smith. Morgan's a Ph.D. candidate with the Texas A&M University. And he's also with the Center for the Study of the First Americans. Uh, Ryan recently accomplished something pretty amazing. Uh, For those of you that uh, don't know and have just been living under a rock and not paying any attention to social media recently, uh, Ryan just recently successfully completed a hunt uh, where he was hunting American bison with an atlatl. Now, before I get into the details of the hunt, I would like for these gentlemen to give us a little bit more background about themselves. So, Ryan, I'll toss it to you first. All right. Um, well, yeah, like, like you said, if if people are uh, living under a rock and haven't figured <laughs> it out by now, uh, I build uh, primitive weapons and tools for a living and then, of course, go out and use them. Uh, on various different hunts, deer, pig, sheep, alligators even, and now uh, the bison. And, uh, I mean, I was super stoked to be able to really get into this opportunity, which, I mean, I'm already, you can tell I'm excited, I'm ready to to get on and talk to it. But (laughs) uh, go ahead and introduce Morgan, and then... uh, Sure, Morgan, so give everyone, say hello to everyone, and give us a little more background about yourself. Hey folks, yeah, Morgan Smith here. Um, happy to be on here talking about this really amazing hunt that I got that I was really lucky to be a part of. Um, I'm a PhD candidate in the anthropology department at Texas A&M University, so I'm an archaeologist and I specialize in looking at the uh, Ice Age peoples in North America, Paleo Indians, and 
a lot of my research has to do with uh, looking at prehistoric big game hunting and and adaptations of people to to hunting large game. So when when I heard about this hunt, I was thrilled to be excited, uh, thrilled to be a part of it, and uh, and yeah, happy to be here today talking about it. And I, I believe me, I'm very happy to have both of you on the show. Now, I do want to get into that hunt, but one thing that I, a couple things I have to ask you, Morgan. So, uh-huh. do have you um, have you I'm assuming you've participated in like um, digs of of native Native American sites and those kind of things. Is that something that you've done? Yes, uh, I've done uh, several sites, several excavations across the southeast United States. So a lot of my research of late is focused on Florida, but I've also worked on prehistoric sites in Mississippi and Georgia and Tennessee and South Carolina and just kind of all over the southeast United States in general. But a lot of the work that I've been looking at recently in the state of Florida, which is in the Tallahassee, Gainesville, and Ocala areas, looks at underwater archaeological sites. So these are actually sites that would have been exposed to dry land during the last ice age, but as ice melted and sea levels rose, these are now underwater and more often than not, what we're finding at these sites is associations of prehistoric people from the last ice age. So their archaeological remains, whether that's lithic artifacts or, or ivory or bone tools, associated more often than not with big game of some kind. So particularly American mastodon uh, and Colombian mammoth, but other species as well, such as bison antiquus and so th- this reevaluation of a lot of these sites, which a lot of this work was pioneered in the early 2000s and late 1990s, has been picking up lately, and it's been it's been a really interesting time to be studying this period, particularly in the lower southeast. Very interesting, and I've, I've it was definitely not the program of study that I had when I was in college. <laughs> I was in the uh, engineering, IT, computer field. Oh but yeah, I do remember growing up. Uh, I actually got to to hang out around and watch a, a, an excavation taking place. And this was in, in North Carolina, and it was under Dr. Coe, who used to be with, I want to say it was NT, NC State. Um, not 100% sure on that, but anyway, it was some uh, some uh, property adjacent to a, a farm that, that my family owned. Ah. And, you know, got to watch them actually go in and, and, you know, go through and if I remember the most I remember about it was there was like, you know, they were they were they were digging, they were screening everything and then they were actually putting the dirt back in behind them. So it was almost once they left, you you really couldn't tell they'd been there. Um, but it was it was really cool to watch. And I was, you know, I think I was in my mid teens and was already fascinated with uh, finding and collecting uh, air. Well, we called them airheads, I think, they're, you know. Uh, at lateral points is is probably the majority of what we yeah. were, what we were finding. But uh, anyway, just had to ask that. No, no, it was a little bit of a tangent, but cool. Yeah, no, I always always happy to hear people interested in archaeology, especially from an early age. Sure. So I guess, guys, let's just let's just dive in here, and I'll let you figure out exactly you know where you want to start this this story. But tell me, you know how did how did this hunt come about? Well, I'm gonna kick it right on back to when uh, Morgan and I met. Uh, obviously, if you've been following my story, like I said, I've just been building and, and hunting with uh, all this primitive gear, and I got into Atlatl. I mean, shoot, we, we even talked uh, a bit about the Atlatl, I think, on our last podcast, uh, and it was probably, wasn't shortly after I completed that uh, pig hunt that I went to the Silver River nap-in uh, there in Silver Springs, Florida, 
and uh, that's a great social event. And of course, I kind of work there as a vendor as well. And after hours, all the vendors kind of get together in Millibrout and, you know, get to socialize with one another. And uh, Morgan and uh, another friend slash colleague of his um, were talking to one of the other vendors. And the conversation was just a little too good, so I had to kind of eavesdrop in a little bit. And and I'm already friends with those other vendors anyway, so I just kind of made myself at home until I was invited into the conversation. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But they were talking about uniface blades and kind of the practical application of what uh, certain artifacts would have been used for. And, uh, you know, then, of course, he introduced me as, you know, uh, he's like, well, you know, shoot, you ought to, you know, meet this guy. This is Ryan. You know, he, he builds all this stuff and, and goes and hunts with it. So he may have some, you know, interesting information for you as well. And so I think we talked a little bit about it, and it wasn't too much, you know, later. I started kicking around the idea that I wanted to uh, to do a bison hunt with the atlatl. And uh, I thought, man, you know, what a great opportunity if I could actually have an archaeologist on site, you know, to, to compare it. Because that's one of the biggest issues that I've had uh, in doing this is people will get on the internet and tell me that I'm wrong. You know, this happens like all the time as if they lived 10,000 years ago and know exactly how this stuff happened. And, and basically, um, I don't try to recreate uh, an artifact and then make it work. I create whatever I feel that needs to work for whatever I'm hunting. And then once it works, then I compare that to something in the record. And then that's how I can basically join the two together. And I think Morgan appreciated that, uh, that I wasn't trying to fit a, you know, a square peg in a round hole. I was just making my own peg and then I would look and, and find the hole that it fit in. Well, without going down a rabbit trail, I mean, are you seriously sitting here trying to tell me that, that people on the internet will tell you you're wrong? <laughs> <laughs> Very much so. <laughs> this has been kind of a joke. I, I don't want to <laughs> go too far down the down the rabbit hole here, but Nick's been joking around with me. He's going to get a kick out of hearing me say this, but he's been saying he's going to start compiling things that he sees on Facebook and he's going to create his own episode that we'll just drop at some point. And the title of the episode is going to be, I heard it on Facebook <laughs> I mean, it, because of the stuff that you see in here. But anyway, oh, yeah. no kidding. and, uh, oh, shoot, I was thinking where I was, I was going somewhere else with that. It was good, <laughs> yeah, but sorry, I no, no, that's fine. That's, it's fine. I just so used to it, but that's, oh, that's what it was is, you know, if you have somebody that has, a real education in this and they are supporting a lot of what you're doing it adds a lot of validity to to what you're doing and so when you have all these you know armchair experts that are telling you that you're doing it wrong when you know deep down inside I know that I may not be doing it exactly like somebody did at that point in time but the way that I am doing it works uh, you know but then you also come to realize that everything has been done before and you're talking about you know, 10,000 years worth of technology and, you know, what millions of people over that span of time that have lived and used this technology, everything has been done. Uh, so to say that you're doing it wrong, it's not like there's like this gold standard, like every atlatl dart must be six feet long made of this type of hardwood right. with this type of point on the end. And, and they were all used to hunt 
you know, mammoths. So that's, you know, that's a ridiculous way of looking at it without any doubt. And in talking with Morgan, uh, he seemed to appreciate my interest in kind of doing whatever I want to do. And then saying, here, I accomplished this. Now let's go look at it and see if we can, you know, tie the two together with something. Uh, reverse engineering, if you will. So this was a, a bit of a... I don't know that I've ever heard a any sort of, of hunt approached from from this perspective. You know, from the perspective of... Not again. Not trying to go down that that historically accurate. Everything's got to be exactly the way it was. But still, to you know, to to approach it from a perspective of, uh, you know, here's what we here's what we think. Here's what we know based on, you know, research and those kind of things. And and then putting putting that to to bear with someone who's actually been out there and trying to recreate some of this this lost history and have has been pretty effective with it, but. Again, not on this the scale of American bison, which you know, I don't even know if we want to go down that that path of you know what what the differences are from an effective perspective of an atlatl to a whitetail versus something as big as a, a bison. I'll let you guys decide if you want to go that far along, but but still, so you you met up and you you started. When did you actually start planning the uh, the actual hunt? Almost a year. To the date, um, it was because let's see, the Silver River Nap in this year is uh, February 16th and 17th, and so it was a year. That's when we met, uh, and of course, when of course, and I pitched the idea. It was just a little bit of speculation of ah, I was thinking this would be kind of cool, but I'm thinking maybe you know a couple years down the road, and then of course I have a habit of doing that, and I'm like, now nah, if I'm going to do it, you know, we're going <laughs> to we're going to do it this year, and you know, next thing you know, I'm on the phone with them saying, hey. Uh, Remember when, you know, I'm calling the director, uh, Scott Mitchell of Silver River, and I was like, hey, you know, what was Morgan's, you know, what was his last name and how do I get a hold of him? And he's like, oh, yeah, here you go. So I call him up out of the blue and, and I'm like, hey, remember we met? And he's like, yeah, I remember. And I said, hey, you want to go do that bison hunt? And he's like, what, really? Yeah. <laughs> like, uh, okay. And I'm like, he's not going to come. <laughs> so so who's, whose idea was the, was the hunt itself? Oh, it was my idea. Oh, yeah, I was kicking nice. that around for a little while. Yeah. And, uh, but yeah, once we, you know, once I talked to him and just realized that one of the most important factors to me in choosing an archaeologist, and I know Morgan's probably going to laugh because I already told him this once, is there's, to me, there's two different types of archaeologists. There's the ones that are in a stage of their life where they are trying to absorb everything that they possibly can. They want to learn. They want to discover. They, you know, they, they want, again, to absorb everything. And then there's a certain amount of time, at least, and it may not happen to everybody, but there's a certain amount of time that passes in which you no longer want to absorb, and you mm -hmm. turn into somebody that just wants to pontificate. Right. And so if I talk to somebody, say, that's maybe retired, and say, hey, you know, this would be great. You know, most people look at, you know, older gentlemen or, or ladies that, you know, have a degree and say, well, you know, they are much more experienced, you know, and, and maybe that is the case. But they also are the first ones to tell you that you're doing it wrong because it doesn't look like something in a book uh, that they grew up learning from. And uh, basically, they, they stop learning after a certain amount of time. And uh, Morgan was very much in that stage where he just, he wants as much uh, content or as much data as he can collect. And it just, it seemed like when I met him, it, it almost seemed like 
I had this book um, and I was deciphering a lot of it, but there were pages missing. And then when I met him, he was like, hey, I have those pages. And then it completed, you know, the book that I could finish. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So I, I do want to I do want to ask um, Morgan yeah. now is have you are you an are you an outdoorsman or I mean, do you hunt fish or is this something that was, you know, a, a little bit foreign. Yeah, yeah. I, I would say I'm an outdoorsman. I I dive. I I rock climb. I go hiking and stuff. But and I I used to fish when I was younger. But this was honestly probably like the second hunt I've ever been on. So I'm not I'm not much of a hunter. And this this was definitely a very foreign thing to me. I mean, I remember meeting Ryan like he was talking about at the nap in and and I, and that was actually my first nap in I'd never really been to a nap in before and and it all of a sudden I was just like whoa there's all these people that are meeting and they're they're recreating all the stuff that I'm studying so why aren't I there and and so I went to the Silver River nap in because I was also giving a talk uh that year and and yeah I met Ryan and, and it was kind of like he was talking about where uh you know, I, I remember I, we, we first got got talking and, and I was like, oh yeah, what do you, what point do you use to hunt? And I don't know if he remembers this or not, but I was like, yeah, what point do you use to hunt uh, like deer or whatever? And, and he was like, well, I use Bolin points and, um, or Dalton points. And I was like, oh, okay, well, why not Clovis points? You know, cause here I am, I've never, I've never hunted anything before. And, and this is, this is all that I know associated with big game and the archeological record is Clovis points. And he was like, uh, well, there's a really simple reason for that, you know, hold up both hands. And he, and so he had me hold up both my hands and he, and he said, okay, well, here's this Dalton point in one hand and he had a Dalton point and he had a Clovis point in the other. And he pushed them against my palms and he said, which one hurts more? You know, and he wasn't, tr- he wasn't trying to hurt me, obviously, but, but he was just trying to address this point of like, okay, you have this very round nosed Clovis point pressing against my skin and then you have this very sharp uh, notch Dalton Bowen point pressing in my skin and I was like yeah ow my right hand hurts worse Ryan you know <laughs> and you yeah we can stop this experiment <laughs> and and I was like oh yeah okay that makes a lot of sense and and that was like one of the things that struck me about Ryan most was yeah he didn't really care what I knew as as in terms of what we were finding but but he was really experienced hunter who had and and when when i had initially talked to him he'd mentioned that he'd killed you know lots of large game with with an atlatl before and and so that bow mostly yeah yeah i was just getting started with the oh okay well yeah yeah lots with the bow yeah lots with the bow and 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 yeah i was just like okay that that makes a lot of sense you know he's the one who's doing it so and yeah, we got he he tossed out this idea of one day hunting big game with an atlatl, like a big big animal, like the bison, and and you know at the time we were just kind of like, oh yeah, yeah, whatever, you know, <laughs> we'll see if that comes to fruition. And like you said, he just called me one day and was like, hey, what what are you doing in January? <laughs> you know? And I was just like, well, I, nothing really right now. I don't know why. What do you got going on? And he's like, well, you remember that like that bison hunt I was talking about, you know, a year ago or so? And I was like, vaguely, yeah, I kind of remember that. He's like, well, I'm gonna do it. So, so are, can you come or not? And I was just like, yeah, well, I've never really hunted anything <laughs> like you know i don't really know what to bring but if you don't mind having you know a 
nerdy scientist with glasses and a pen pad around like yeah i'll go up there and <laughs> i'll watch you do it so that's how that all went to went down basically you so, know and go ahead ryan go ahead. Uh, the uh you know and and that's a a good thing to touch on too is most your hunts say like deer hunts and and whatnot to have somebody in tow you know, even a cameraman is really tough. But if you talk about, you know, now you have an archaeologist there, I mean, your chances of getting something like that done are very, very slim. But I looked at it from the very beginning going, if there was ever an opportunity to have somebody that could stand back and observe from a distance, it would be on a bison. And it's not because, it's certainly not because they're tame. You can't just go up and pet them. Everybody thinks they're a cow. Um, they would be um, a very skittish and aggressive cow um, <laughs> that, that, yeah. that, uh, that has a very uh, solid buffer zone that will let you get so close and that's it. Like, they don't care. that You can be there all day, say at 40 yards, and they just, they don't care. They'll just keep an eye on you. Uh, you know, where if you did that with a deer, the second that it sees you, it's gone. And so, you know, and he says, well, I've never been on a hunt before and, you know, I don't know what to do. I was like, you just need to show up. And just stand back at whatever distance, you know, we basically give you the thumbs up, like, that's pretty good. Um, and you can, you know, kind of witness it from there. And actually, he ran the camera for me quite a bit, too. <laughs> yeah. uh, First time was, also. Which was great. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it doesn't hurt to have extra uh, extra angles of, of uh, film. So I just knew that, like, if, if we were ever going to do it, then this was the one that it needed to happen on. So, uh, you know, that's why we went that direction for sure. So, Ryan, I'm going to flip this back around on you. And, and for everyone listening, we are going to get into the details about this hunt and some other things, too. But there's some dynamics here that I just think are, are too interesting not to touch on. But So how was it for you uh, going out with, you know, Morgan, who really wasn't a hunter? How How, how did that... How did that interaction play out? That didn't bother me in the least. Like I said, I kind of knew what I was getting into, at least as far as a bison was concerned. I wasn't concerned in the least. The only thing is I didn't know how he would react to, say, seeing an animal being killed. Uh, and quite honestly, that wasn't really a big concern of mine. <laughs> I figured he's an adult. He can he can work. Right. If he, he knew what he was getting into yeah. when he showed up. And uh, But other than that, I had zero concern as far as you know, any of that, uh, came about. It just, it, it wasn't even something that was on my mind. So, so you kind of went there. So back to you, Morgan, um, you know, what was, what was that experience like for you? I mean, was that, was the, was the, the bison, the first animal that you've seen taken in, in the field like that? Um, yeah, I would say that's the first animal I've, I mean, I've seen other animals die for sure, but ne- right. yeah, I've, I've never like witnessed a, a hunt that up close and personal, and um, and yeah, I've never really s- seen that happen before. And and r- actually, you know, Ryan came up to me right after the animal was finally down on the ground, and he was and he came up right next to me. And he's just like, "How are you doing?" And I was like, "Yeah, that was that was kind of emotional, but you know, I'm fine." Yeah, it's, I knew I was coming here to to watch this so um yeah it's it's tough to see an animal as majestic as that die but you know it was it was also just like an amazing experience all around so and i can't speak for i can't i I have one follow-up question i want to ask you there but i I do want to touch on that i i can't speak for every hunter um i can tell you that i've I, i lost count a long time ago of how many uh animals i've taken with 
one weapon or another since I was, I think I take, took my first deer when I was like 18. Um, but even to this day, I still feel part of that. And I hope it never goes away because if it does, I don't think I want to hunt anymore. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that, that was the thing that stood out to me too, is that's what Ryan told me. And that's what the, all the other hunters on the, on the group told me were like, yeah, it's, it's never easy to watch, you know? No, it, it, it never goes away. Uh, so last, last question on this path and then we'll move on is it, you know, have you, have you thought about it much since that occurred? And, you know, from a perspective of, do you see yourself possibly wanting, wanting to hunt in the future or is it just something that, you know, you experienced it and it, you know, it doesn't appeal to you moving forward. Did it change anything as far as, you know, is it, is it a, is it a, uh, something you'd like to pursue yourself or, or no? Um, it definitely changed my appreciation on a, on a lot of levels for it. I mean, um, you know, I, I eat a lot of meat and I eat a lot of red meat and, and all kinds of meat really. And, and so it was nice to be that close to the process, you know, because Ryan's really strict on subsistence hunting and he does take advantage of all the elements that are available there and he, he uses the meat to feed his family. And so, um, it was nice to kind of be privy to that process in terms of, of taking the animal from the wild and, and turning it into, to what you use to sustain yourself. So that was definitely a changing experience. Um, I wouldn't say I'm, I'm going to be a hunter, you know? Um, but it, the, the thing about it for sure was, I mean, I would, it was fascinating watching Ryan hunt and it was fascinating, um, watching this process that I've studied so much just from dry literature play out in front of me in, in real time. And so sure. as far as watching more hunts, yeah, I mean, I, I would love to. I mean, I learned so much on this one and I, I feel like I collected a lot of information, but I'm also kicking myself for some stuff that I've looked back on and been like, man, I wish I would have recorded that more. So, um, yeah, I would love to be more involved in terms of watching these primitive hunts take place because they're just like a time machine i mean it's like looking through a time machine really sure sure and i you know without uh one one day i actually want to try uh an atlatl and i i actually want to build it myself and i'll probably be bugging ryan about this <laughs> at some point uh but I'd, i you know go out and try to you know pick up a bow and and start shooting that a little bit and see i, you, I think Hunting with with you know primitive traditional gear, uh, I can't again. I can't speak to that loud just because I haven't done it. But I think you know it, it's so much more than just the hunt. I think if you you know if you got out and tried that a little bit, see you know see if it's something that you like. You know you may you may surprise yourself and and see that somewhere down the road you do want to try it. If you don't, I mean it, you know it's there there. I should have prefaced this before I ask you those <laughs> questions, but there's no wrong answers here. Yeah. I just I'm just you know trying to trying to see it from your perspective because it's it's a perspective that that i haven't had in a very long time since i was a you know a child really so um yeah it's, it's really kind of neat for me and, and uh i think you know ryan, ryan did show me how to use uh i mean he that's when i first bumped into him at the silver ever napping was at his at his table where he had all these beautiful bows and and atlatls laid out and he actually did show me how he fired one of the one of the bows and i think it would be a really neat thing to to get to use to get to see up close and personal one day but but yeah for now i'm i'm thrilled to just watch 
Okay. And, and fair enough. And that's awesome. Um, so I guess probably should move on. I've, I've managed to drag that out a really long time. Uh, <laughs> so Ryan, back to you, you know, and I, I know part of this, but just for the sake of everyone that, that is listening, you know, how long have you actually been uh, hunting with an atlatl? And I'd also like to know, because I know you've taken, I know you've taken, uh, know you've taken hogs with the atlatl. You know, what did you do differently to prepare for this hunt from a perspective of, did you use the same atlatl and the same spears or, you know, did you develop a new, a new, uh, I don't want to use the word system, but you know what I mean? Did you develop new equipment for this hunt? Basically, I just beefed everything up. Uh, you know, and it's, it's, uh, everything that I've done previous to this hunt is a culmination uh, of all this data collected to put into uh, the bison hunt. So this way I know what to expect when I'm going into it. So it's not like I just decided one day, hey, I'm going to just go do a bison hunt. So that's, you know, that would be, you know, really putting the carriage before the horse, so to speak, to just say, I'm going to jump right into it with no data or experience to go on. So like, I always had it in my head, I wanted to kill something really big and I'm fresh out of Colombian mammoths and mastodons. <laughs> Um, if South Korea ever comes along, you know, and needs, uh, you know, needs to clone one and then it gets sick and they want somebody to spear it, I hope I'm the guy. Um, but, you know, I figured, you know, something bison or moose would be really, really epic, but I knew I couldn't just jump into that not knowing. So like say the, the, uh, the pig hunts have killed two pigs, uh, the sheep, you know, and then two alligators. And a lot of that is, is testing to see what I can actually get away with you know, with the atlatl, like, where is it actually performing, you know, and that's a very long road and a rabbit hole that we don't even need to go down at this point, because I could tell you a whole podcast just on my experiences leading up with the atlatl, but basically, I would go do a hunt and kill an animal, and then read, uh, you know, the performance of the weapon, and uh, as I continued to do this and I, and I wouldn't just read this, the successes, but also the failures and how I can improve on it. And so when I finally got to a point where I was like, I'm pretty sure that I can penetrate, uh, you know, something as large as a bison. Cause I, the last thing I ever want to do is show up on a hunt, uh, unprepared and then fail. I mean, that's, you know, that's everybody's worst nightmare in that situation, especially with something that's, uh, you know, kind of looked at with a certain amount of stigma, you know, an atlatl or a spear that's already under fire as it is. So I wanted to really show up and put my best foot forward on it. So I just beefed up my whole spear and uh, an atlatl system. Um, and basically, I think I went from about th- about 3,000 to 3,200 grains uh, is my normal pig hunting or sheep hunting or whatever size spear. Mm-hmm. And by the time I was done changing four shafts and you know coming up with the heaviest pieces possible not i ended up adding a banner weight to the back of my uh atlatl thrower to help counterbalance but i was up to about 4300 grains so i put on a little over a thousand grains on this bison spear 
and uh, I was feeling very confident uh, that I was going to be able to penetrate. But, I, you know, with, there was still a little bit of trepidation in there. I didn't know for sure if I hit a rib square on, was it going to penetrate it? Uh, if I hit the shoulder, was it going to penetrate it? Or, you know, is it just the hair and hide going to be too, you know, too tough to get through? I just didn't really know. But I was able to take all those little pieces of the puzzle that I've collected throughout the years of bow hunting and watching, pen you know, stone stones penetrate animals. And then, of course, looking at the data that I've collected from killing other animals. And I put that together and I say, I want to do, I want to, you know, build the best thing that I can build with this material. And uh, I don't want just good enough. I want I want to really do it the best that it can be done. And uh, so that's how I went into it from the word go. So, and I, and I know some of this from, from following some of the stuff that you've, you know, you've posted on Facebook, but it was a, a, a river cane uh, dart with a wood foreshaft, right? That's correct. Yeah. So and and, it's pretty, pretty good size river cane. Overall, the whole length of the whole spear is about nine feet uh, and that's with the foreshaft and the foreshaft I had about mm, 14 or so inches of exposed foreshaft and then of course the foreshaft that went inside but where this one kind of differed is, is I used a larger foreshaft uh, that was actually like the same diameter as the cane but then I tapered it like a barrel tapered down so there was no abrupt uh, transition right. between foreshaft and cane because I wanted it to over penetrate if possible which normally and again it's a different subject altogether but I'll touch on it quick is when I build these other ones it's a the spear is a resource to me and it would have been to ancient peoples as well you don't want to have to build a whole new spear every time you kill an animal ideally sure. you would like to just replace the foreshaft so uh, you know I went into this or went into the normal pig hunts going well I want that big uh, abrupt transition because I don't want to over penetrate but it's still going to give me plenty uh, but at the same time I want to on the bison have that ability to over penetrate if possible if that makes sense so I you know that was yeah, no it does it yeah. does and so, what was what was the what's the wood that you used for the foreshaft uh, primarily sparkleberry I think I also cut some cherry um, basically anything that's heavy and okay. wood is is in relatively straight is good for me. And of course, then I kind of straighten it as it dries, and apply a little heat to it as need be to keep it straight. And then uh, you know that really ups the weight quite a bit. I mean, my four shaft alone, uh, they were between nine hundred and a thousand grains. So I mean, you're talking just my four shaft was weighs twice as much as most people's arrows. Right, right. And then you mentioned the, and I was going to ask you about that, so I'm glad you mentioned it. You mentioned you you added a, a counterweight to the atlatl itself, mm -hmm. um, and you know, did was that a trial and error process, or was there some kind of equation that you went to? And for people that don't know what we're what what we're talking about, the the atlatl is the 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 handle that you're actually using to to throw this this dart right and you add up and i actually in fact i've still got one here somewhere that i found years ago that um when i was actually out looking for airheads and i found this um stone with a a, a hole drilled through it but anyway you know how did you go about determining what weight that needed to be uh it's all about balance so and of course i have a whole video on building the atlatl and how i balance it on my youtube channel so if anybody that wants to go look that up just look up hunt primitive how to build an atlatl it's a two different part uh, video but anyway the 
you really want it to be very well balanced when you hold it. I like mine to be a little bit tip-heavy feeling. But of course, the heavier your dart or your spear uh, in the front, especially, the more it's going to want to kind of nosedive in your hand. And you want to be able to comfortably hold it in the cocked and ready-to-throw position. And so if, if it's so nose-heavy that it's not comfortable and it wants to kind of take that nosedive, you can add a weight and that adds a little bit of momentum to your throw as well. I don't think a significant amount. I think more so it is about counterbalance, but at least in my experience. But then that'll counterbalance out. So when you hold the spear or the dart up, and uh, you know, I like to say spear. To me, a dart is something you, you throw at a dart board or you shoot out of a blowgun. Sure. Uh, this this thing's nine feet long and you know you know weighs. 10 to 12 ounces. I mean, to me, that's a spear. So anyway, <laughs> that's why I do that. People are going to, again, tell me I'm wrong. It's a dart. You know, no, it's a spear. So, <laughs> um, but anyway, so I want that to be really balanced uh, when I hold it. And so that was just, I took a piece of chert that I was, you know, that I had left over and I basically napped out a rock that, and I kept removing flakes from it until I got the balance that I was looking for. And then I used uh, some pine pitch to glue it down and then wrap that with rawhide just to really secure it into place and uh, so that's really all that that counterbalance weight that banner stone is at least in my set is nothing more than a counterbalance and I didn't need that um, for my other spears because I built that thrower specifically for hunting you know deer or pigs or sheep or whatever and the spears balanced very well that was part of the building process where I said we're going to build the spears first and then we're going to build a thrower, and that's something that I teach in my classes as well. Get the spears done first, and then you build the thrower to match it, as opposed to the other way around. But now I also see the need for the banner stone, because in a spear that's that heavy, if I was really going to counterbalance it, I mean, already my, my thrower, my outlet thrower is about, I think it's either 30 or 33 inches long. So it's very long, considered comparable to what most people in quotations think that an outlet thrower should be mine's already much longer you know it's as long as my arm as it is so i would be looking at something very very long which doesn't necessarily make it wrong i, I just knew that i didn't think i needed to go longer i just figured let's counterbalance it out well the the, the length of the the thrower is but that's where you gain your your momentum right yeah, really. I mean, it's, it's leverage at the end right. of the day, so it's just basic physics, and I'm definitely not like a math guy or super smart as far as that stuff goes, but I mean, the longer your thrower, the faster the tip speed, and then the more you know power that you can get behind it. But there's obviously going to be a certain length in which you kind of lose control of it. Sure. Um, and I just kind of found that sweet spot. Most people say, I don't know, they, they do like some sort of measurement. I have no idea who came up with this. It's, this stuff's all subjective and silly to me. But they're like, well, your thrower should be is the distance from the inside of your elbow to the tip of your fingers. And I look at that thing, oh, that's a tiny little baby thrower. What am I going to do with that? You have to put a big old banner weight on the end of that thing to make it do anything, you know? I want one, you know, I want something I can put some oomph behind, you know? Well, I, um, and and I know from the the one video that I I recently saw where you were uh, you were throwing the spear into the uh, the bales with the I think you had a, a beer can or something up there. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I like uh, the beer can. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we we've heard that tonight. Yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean those those things had they were they definitely had some oomph behind them when they were hitting the target. I mean that was that was audibly noticeable. Yeah. Uh, actually, I just just today, uh, 
had a, uh, a game commission friend of mine. I've known him for a long time, and now he's in the FWC, but he came by. He has a, uh, a radar gun. And I said, hey, swing on by with that thing a minute. I want to see. Because I, I tried throwing my spear through a chronograph, uh, and that's a really dangerous thing. I, I, uh, <laughs> when you try to you know wiggle a paradoxing spear through a chronograph, you can be really accurate. It doesn't matter. It's going to hit. And it just blew pieces everywhere. And yeah. my spear deflected up and almost went through the window. And I was like, you know what? Let's <laughs> go a different route. So he came over with uh, a radar gun just today, actually. And we got uh, clocked it because I wanted to know the kinetic energy in comparison to arrows and whatnot. Um, and he clocked it at f- pretty steady three times in a row, 52 miles an hour, which, you know, compared to that, you know, say somebody throwing a baseball may not sound like it's very fast. Uh, but 52 miles an hour focused on a tiny little uh, point on the end of it. Uh, is is going to do some serious damage. And actually, when you run it through a kinetic energy calculator, given the weight of the spear and the the uh, speed that it's going, I think it's something. It was something like seventy five foot pounds of energy. Uh, you know, which is most people's self bows and shooting. You know, five hundred grain arrows with stone points. You know, most people are shooting about thirty to thirty five foot pounds. So I'm like double of what a self-bow with stone points is, is shooting, you know, with this bison spear set up. That's, that's still almost 80 feet per second from a hand-thrown weapon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, <laughs> people can can shirk that off all they want to, but, I mean, you know, I, 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 haven't, I haven't shot my any of my bows through a chronograph in a long time, but, you know, I'm often – Ask and I, I I estimate my bows are probably somewhere in the one fifty to one sixty with the weight arrows I shoot, and that's from a bow. You're getting you're getting oh, yeah. half that from a hand thrown weapon, mm-hmm. and what and how many grains again? Uh, Forty three hundred. <laughs> that's insane. <laughs> yeah, it's heavy. And for people that funny enough, you know, they look at me using river cane, and then they're like, "Well, that's not heavy enough." Um, you know that, and that's that's a horrible medium to build a spear from. And also remember that things are nine feet long, so I'm making up for it. And I love a long spear because anything that's longer like that is more stable in flight and it's more accurate. And uh, I don't know why people are like, oh well, you know, you have better technique if you throw a shorter one. You know, it proves that your technique's better. And, and honestly, I don't. I'm. I'm. You've. We've talked before. I don't really care about like form archery or technique or whatever. I'm. I'm into like getting the job done and killing something. Because that's what primitive man would have done. So I want whatever works best. Um, but for somebody that thinks, ah, oh, well, you know, a, a cane or a bamboo spear, that's not going to weigh anything. Uh, if you've never thrown, you know, if you don't throw an atlatl on a regular basis, like that's not your thing, and you pick up one that weighs 4,300 grains, uh, you're going to hurt yourself throwing it. It took me a while to get to where, I mean, even throwing a 3,000 grain spear you know, it's different, you know, compared to just going and picking up a, a little starter set somewhere that's got 1,500 grain, you know, little six-foot cane at little darts, and you're throwing it like that's not a big deal. And their arm is sore afterwards, you know, the next day. And I'm like, you're, you're ramping this up, you know, by great percentages. Uh, and it's hard to throw. I mean, they drop off really fast. And uh, even your throwing technique has to change when you're throwing these these great big ones because... The way that I throw it, you know, pigs, uh, I'm not going to be able to deliver a spear very far. I mean, it just dumps down into the ground really fast. I've got to take a big step 
and a big follow through and really deliver that that spear. It's it's much heavier than people think that it is. It sounds light because it's cane or bamboo, and it's it's not. It's a massive thing. But doesn't the I'm gonna ask this question, and Morgan Morgan is sitting there right now, and I know he's had the thought, <laughs> and people think I nerd out. Uh, <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet, Stephen. <laughs> but when it comes to when you're talking about the length of the spear and the 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 bamboo, the, not bamboo, the river cane, I, I would think based on what I know and what I've read about the atlatl system. That's just going to a point that's going to give you the ability to, to store more, basically store more energy in that shaft as it's as, as you're accelerating and, it, and and putting the thrust to the back of that shaft. I mean, it looks like to me it would be a perfect medium as a as a spear. It but is. I think it's I, the best one there is. <laughs> nature's carbon. I mean, Absolutely. that's and it's t- God, that stuff's tough. So, um, all right, we'll we'll quit we'll quit nerding out on the on the out loud, but that's it's all it's all good stuff, and it's it's something that you're one of the. I mean, I know there's other people out there that are that are throwing at ladles and doing this, but you know, there's I, I can't think of anybody else that has actually put it into practice in the field like you are. So, no, you know, not with I, stone tools and not with stone tips, and uh, and certainly nobody with spears as as long as mine <laughs> and a thrower as long well, as mine. Well, <laughs> now there you had to go there, Ryan. Now somebody's <laughs> going to be making some kind of comment about it's all about length with this guy. That's right, and that was you, not me. So. <laughs> That's right. That's all right. So, all right, so let's let's actually start getting into we're getting we're getting carried away here. Let's let's get into you know some of the details about about the hunt. Uh, you know, I don't know how how specific you guys want to be, and that's you know it's perfectly fine. But you know, where was the hunt? You can be as specific or as as least specific as you'd like to be. But where did the hunt take place? Okay, I mean, I'm pretty much an open book. I don't I try not to hide anything. Um, so. The hunt was in Missouri. I won't give the name of the place, just mostly because I don't have permission to do so, and I'm sure they wouldn't mind that in the very least, uh, sure. but just for the sake of say-so. Uh, but it was on a few thousand-acre ranch. So everything basically these days uh, that has to do with spear hunting, unless it's like p- uh, private land in Florida, you're allowed to hunt pigs. Everything else needs to be in more of a controlled situation, you know, in essence, a high fence operation, which carries with it a huge amount of stigma, which is, again, another rabbit hole in itself. Um, But we wanted to make, you know, we wanted to do this legally, obviously, and we also wanted it to be as close to free range as possible. Sure. Um, And I I don't know the exact number, but it was well over 2,000 acres that they had uh that they had the the bison had complete access and it was about 60 to 70 herd or head in the herd um so quite a few well on the on the whole place not necessarily in that herd that was that was there i think there was i don't know 30 or 40 wouldn't you say morgan yeah yeah that was that was quite a few of them i mean and i i was definitely impressed at the size of the the ranch when i was first told it was a a ranch in missouri i was like well how big can it be and you know it's it turns out it's huge i mean it's yeah. several square miles and it wasn't easy to find the bison let alone hunt them i mean it, it's something that basically took all day just to even get get what we did yeah yeah i mean it's a uh, and it's very hilly country it's in the ozarks 
And so, and it's very forested and there's open pasture and stuff too. Uh, and they can disappear in there surprisingly well. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it is a big herd. You know, you have some of your really big ones that are off by themselves. And I would have loved to have had the opportunity to stock up on one that was by itself. Unfortunately, when you're in that situation, you're playing by ranch rules. And those ones that are by themselves are typically like your record book sized animals. And they want, you know, thousands and thousands more than, you know, an average bull bison. And so we just we were limited by funds at that point. And, uh, you know, I didn't really care. I just wanted an adult specimen cow, bull, whatever, that I could put a spear into to see how it, how it worked. It was data collection at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we went into this hunt, and this is different. I, I've always prided myself on the challenge of the hunt. So anything that I do, I always want to make it difficult. I mean, that's the essence of primitive hunting in general in today's world. Um, you know, that's the reason I take up and most people take up primitive weapons is because they want the most challenge and the most reward out of it. And I knew that this was going to be a little bit different. I didn't expect to be able to just stroll up to the animal and put a spear in it, but I was also, uh, willing to do that. And this is the first time in history, anytime I've gone and done a hunt, like the sheep hunt, I was worried because again, that was in a high fence because it had to be for legal reasons. Um, I showed up to the sheep hunt and I said, well, if I can walk straight up to him, I'm going to pack up and go home because I don't want to spear something that's tame. And I was actually in the mindset because we had a six-man crew there between the other hunters, Morgan, cameraman, myself. Uh, basically, everybody's relying on this production to happen. And it's not about the hunt. Like, I've done hunts. You know, I've gone and killed plenty of real wild game uh, you know, in the mountains that uh, killed that elk on public land in Idaho. And I've, you know, killed every deer that I have killed has been just a wild free range deer. And every pig that I have killed has been a wild free range pig. And so I didn't feel like I had anything to prove from a hunting standpoint. Mm-hmm. It, all this whole thing was about the gear and about comparing, you know, the edge wear and the abuse that's going to be seen on not only the weapons, but also the tools that we'll talk about later that we use to skin the animal. Um, that's what this was about. So I was actually prepared to say, if I can walk up and just spear it, I'm going to do that. Uh, it's not a hunt to me. This it wasn't supposed to be a hunt, uh, but it actually turned to where it was quite a bit of a hunt. Um, uh, and like I've seen many times, when you look at something that's inside of a high fence, unfortunately, it's harassed quite a bit. And uh, they're a lot more spooky than they would be. Like you see videos of bison in Yellowstone and people can walk right up to them and they get themselves in trouble because they walk right up to them. And it's not the case. They're, they're a lot spookier in this situation. So as we were hunting around through this place, kind of, you know, we could find the herd. It seemed relatively, you know, it's relatively easy. I mean, you had to look a little bit. Um, but there were so many eyes on you. Uh, you know, we were sitting down trying to concoct these plans of like, well, I'll, you know, me and the cameraman, we'll, we'll swing way off to the side. They'll forget about it, us. And then we'll come up down the trail. The other hunters, we had a couple other hunters with us, uh, uh, Keith and his wife, Jen, and, uh, my friend RD, uh, Easterling. And, uh, you know, they were going to kind of just kind of push the bison to us like you they wouldn't necessarily run away from you they would just nonchalantly like get up they would let you maintain like a buffer zone i would say of about 40 or 50 yards like that's about as close as you could get before they were like nah and then just start moving on uh, i never had any turn 
I mean, the the big herd bull at one point, I mean, he, he kind of bowed up a couple times, but for the most part, once once the rest of the herd moved on, he turned around and went with them. But we, you know, so we came up with these ideas that we're going to try to push the herd by me. Um, and that doesn't really, there's so many eyes, ears, and noses, and they are not stupid creatures. And we learned really fast that this was going to be a heck of a lot tougher than we expected it to be. And uh, we did actually get a single bull by itself, and we tried to hunt it. And I have never seen an animal get as spooky, you know, as a big of an animal get as spooky as that was. It was easily as spooky as a deer. It would see you across the ridge, and it was gone. And uh, it started to look bleak there for a little while, didn't it, Morgan? <laughs> yeah, yeah. After, I mean, we were salt. I remember when we were first started talking about this, you know. Ryan was like, yeah, I'd love to have this animal down and, and done before noon, you know. And, right, yeah. and I was, and, you know, I don't know anything. Good I'm plan. just walking, yeah, I'm walking in here with my notebook like, all right, this guy's going to get it down before noon. Cool. And, and so I'm just kind of like wandering around and, you know, it's 10 o'clock and we're nowhere close. And then it's it's noon and we got people scattered all over this ranch trying to corral in one bison and then. And, and yeah, and then it's and then it's one, and then it's two, and then it's three, you know, and it's just like, holy, yeah, this is taking a while. Yeah, I mean, it, I got to a point where I was, you know, and you're really limited in the amount of time that you can hunt too. And, and Morgan could really only be there for a day and a half, so we were limited uh, with the amount of time he could spend, as well as our other hunters, you know. And as your party has to disband the production in general is going to go down. And a lot of this is, you know, it is production. Like we're putting on a video of this and the video is not out yet. Um, and it's going to be a big one. It's going to cover on so many different topics. And there's so many reasons for it. You know, not only the archaeological side of things, the data collection, but also the promoting of spear hunting. Like I want to put together something that, that these people that make these laws that say that you're not allowed to hunt, you know, on normal land, you know, with a spear, I, I want to create something that they can go back and make educated decisions now on the lethality and effectiveness of these weapons. So knowing all this, we're under a really, really tight time constraint in which we need to get it done. Um, and so it started to get like, I started really sweating it and started telling people and, and you know, in the party and, and, and uh, starting to almost apologize saying, you know, I, I don't think we're going to be able to get it. Like, I know we can get one, but I don't know that I'm going to be able to get it, you know, now or today. And, uh, you know, this is when you start relying on your other teammates and they start thinking of ideas and they also give you, you know, support. Uh, and they're like, now we're just, you know, we're going to keep doing it, you know, and I'm like, yep, I know this is, you got to dig deep when it, when it gets tough and you don't quit because quitters never win. And we kept after it. And then we just decided we just need to become a normal part of this, this animal's habitat. And so, you know, we didn't push the herd very much. And that was something that I was really insistent on going in after the experience of my sheep hunt. We, we pushed that sheep herd so much that it was nearly impossible. I have no idea how we ended up getting one. It was just dumb luck at the end. It had some that just were coming our way. Uh, and I didn't want to get to the point where this herd of bison were so used to seeing us that they just took off every time they saw us. So we right, never right. wanted to be terribly threatening. So I said, we need to associate ourselves with being a natural part of their environment. And so we would we started just running these experiments where we're not trying to hide. We're not trying to kill them. We would just be 40 or 50 yards and we'd sit down and talk and we would laugh and we would tell stories. And then 
as the bison stopped paying so much attention, we'd just kind of leapfrog ourselves a little bit closer. One person would mosey a little bit closer, and then the next would mosey a little bit closer. And next thing you know, we, 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 we shrunk that gap from 50 yards to 40 yards, you know, on down. Next thing you know, we were 30 yards from some of these animals. And, uh, you know, and some of the calves, we had some opportunities we probably could have taken, but they were, you know, we weren't really proving anything by taking a very small animal. You know, we wanted a, a big one if possible, maybe not the biggest one simply because of the cost of the animal, but, you know, we wanted a full mature, fully grown bison. And, uh, so we just, you know, would kind of, play it easy and get a little bit closer and then when the video is out you'll see that we finally get close enough and I'm like well what I'm going to do is you know I'm only about 30 yards but I and I've been practicing to throw further my comfort zone was really 10 to 15 yards and I didn't want to be inside a 10 because that's really danger zone to me on an animal that big and really sure. I didn't want to be inside 15 yards that was my sweet spot but I've been practicing to 20 and even out to 25 and 30 yards just to see what I can do because I know if I get a bad shot into one and I need to need to have follow-up throws and you can only get so close, I wanted to be able to do that. And I've been practicing hardcore at 20 yards. And going into this, I'm like, I can throw at 20 yards and basically hit the bottom of a five-gallon bucket nine out of ten times at 20 yards. And I mean, you're well within the kill zone of, of one of these animals at that range. But you really always look at it like you're only 50% as good as you train. So when you're under the, you know, that stress of the hunt or or adrenaline, you're never as good as you are when you practice. I mean, anybody that actually shoots even a bow and then goes and hunts, they'll, they'll agree with that statement for the most part. Not maybe everybody, but 90% of people at least. And so as we started closing the distance, at one point I was like, you know, we're, you know, we're probably close enough, but I'm just going to start I'm just going to walk. I'm going to get a spear ready and I'm going to try to just walk and get right into that 15, 20 yard range and see if it, they'll just stay there. Cause at this point they're not really paying a lot of attention. And I just started walking to them and I mean, they were gone and I was like, "Uh Oh, that didn't work. And so, uh, you know, the herd kind of shuffles off a little bit. We didn't spook them real bad. We just kind of stayed with them and just was like, everybody just remain calm and just keep doing what you're doing. Nobody panic no big deal. And, and we settled everything back down. And, and with about 10 minutes, we were able to get that distance right back to where we were. And uh, as we got a little bit closer and a little bit closer and a little bit closer, it was just finally like, okay, well, you know, everybody get, get, you know, get in your, your positions, get your camera on. Cause we're getting, we're getting pretty close. So we're not trying to hide from these animals. We're just trying to close that gap. And I got, I didn't even know how far it was. Morgan was the one that measured it off later I just knew that when I saw the animal at a distance when I felt comfortable is when I would throw and I just kept inching closer and closer and it kept its eye on me and as I got to a certain distance where I felt like I can make this throw I leveled up on it took my time and took a really one good solid um, good mechanical throw and uh, it turned out to be it was uh, about 20 yards or so. I think Morgan said he measured he, – he measures everything. So he walks out. <laughs> I mean, he gets every piece of data. He was uh, recording our emotions. I mean, everything. I mean, crazy amount of data collection that he collected. So he said it was about 19 or 20 meters, you know, so let's just call it 20 yards, whatever. That's, I usually run in yards because I'm not uh, – I'm not European. And <laughs> so um, – so, uh, 
you know, and I, I dumped this spear bit right through its heart. I mean, it was right in the pocket, you know, any deer hunter that knows that pocket right behind the, the, the front leg. Then it was slightly, slightly quartering away. And I just watched that spear paradox and arc. And I mean, just dumped it right through the heart, you know, and it buckled up. And I didn't even know the distance. I assumed I was probably closer. I just wasn't concerned with it. I just felt confident in it. And uh, it took off and ran and, you know, broke the spear off pretty much immediately, broke the foreshaft off. And we kind of lost it. And everybody's like kind of standing around. So the, now the herd's out like 60, 70 yards. They're like, no, you know, something happened last time. We're, either, we're not letting them get this close again. So we started watching them move off. And then one was just standing there by itself. And we're like, okay, well, that's clearly the one. And then as we, as we continued to watch, you could see, and there's snow all over the ground. You know, we we're really blessed. We had a lot of snow. Uh, really made for a great scene, but you could see the blood, you know, in the snow beneath it as it was running down its leg, and so we knew for sure that was it. And uh, you know, most most of these animals, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, deer, pigs, you know, when you put a spear through them and an arrow through their lungs or their heart, they're pretty much down within seconds. You know, and a bison's a really big animal, and I didn't know how long it would take. Uh, but it was on its feet for just about five minutes, I think. And you could see it was kind of wobbly. And I'm like, I can't believe that. I mean, that looked like a great throw, but I started to doubt it because it was still on its feet. And of course, an injured bull bison can be a very dangerous animal. So nobody really wants to get super close to it. But, uh, you know, uh, Morgan and Tim both were running cameras at that time. And they kind of work their way around the other side. And then as I worked in from the side that I uh, was normally coming in on and I got another spear ready and I got into about 15 yards then and I put another one right through its lungs and then at about and it still stood about four more minutes until it was down Uh, but one spear completely through its heart and then another one through through the lungs of it and both spears actually passed uh, through through the rib cage the first one nicked a a rib going in it didn't break it but it kind of glanced off it and you couldn't really see it i don't think in the video but the spear kind of kicked off to the side Um, but it penetrated but both penetrated completely through and embedded in the opposite shoulder so i had a spear throw equally on on each side of it so the first one it was facing i think to the left and then the second throw was facing to the right um and uh both of them penetrated completely through and lodged in the shoulder meat on the opposite side. And uh, we didn't know that later until we skinned it out. Uh, but even, you know, with that, those perfect shots, it was on its feet, I think about nine minutes before it finally went down. Nine minutes. Mm-hmm. And Which to me is just insane to think about because, you know, you shoot a deer through the lungs and it's down in 10 seconds. And but, through the heart, usually 15 yeah, like, yeah, that's, it's a quick process. And I mean, it's a big animal. It took two big spears. but uh, And for a while, I mean, it just kind of walked around like it didn't even know it was hit. Uh, it, you know, it, it just didn't have the energy. It was like, I'm just going to stand here for a while. But it didn't seem to be too concerned, you know. And then, of course, once it started to get a little weaker and I felt confident uh, that I was willing to get up close and, you know. I didn't want to put myself in a dangerous situation, you know, and then there's, you know, there is a certain amount of people expect a certain amount of ethics from you. And I mean, we're going for authenticity. We're not going for ethics, but we have the ability to put another spear in it. So let's do it. But then it's also data collection. That's another point that we can send back uh, to the university with Morgan and he can, he can examine that point as well. So, I mean, double the data on uh, projectile. Uh, so we got close enough and, and put that through. And then, of course, once it went down, 
uh, you know, we gave it a few minutes and just kind of collected our thoughts. And Morgan, uh, he measured out everything that he felt that he needed to measure out. And once we were confident that it was completely expired, nobody was going to get themselves gored or trampled, you know, then we moved up to it and uh, surveyed, you know, the size and the uh, of the animal and the damage, of course, that the projectiles did. And, uh, you know, then we began, we, I mean, shoot, that was at like, like, I don't know, four o'clock or so. I mean, you know, and it's dark at five, five thirty. So we were against the time at that point. So, uh, Jen got started on building us a fire and the, us three guys, the three hunters, we all grabbed our, uh, you know, our chert flakes and our biface knives. And we just started getting to town on this thing. And, uh, and of course, we're running around filming everything. Morgan's running in and out, and he's jotting stuff down and asking questions. And every time that we're, I mean, we're making tools on the site. I've got a core of flint, and I'm knocking spalls off of it. And Morgan's down there, and I'm thinking he just wants the tools. And he's like, no, he's like, no, he's like, man, I want all this. And I'm like, you know, I'm starting to get panic mode because we're running out of time, you know. And so my mind isn't like, hey, let me do this over something, you know, that's easy for him to collect this. So I'm knocking flakes off in the snow and he's there picking up these these tiny little chips out of the snow and in the mud and <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> collecting. I had no idea he was in doing, doing it until we got back later that night. He dumps this big, big bag of all these chips. And he's like, and I'm like, we produced all that? <laughs> he's like, yeah. <laughs> and uh, but he collected everything. And then we'd, you know, we'd stop and he'd measure, uh, you know, the distance of the penetration. And I think we were um, 16 and a half inches on one and I think 17 and a half inches penetration on the other total. Uh, you know, which is, to me, it's incredible on an animal that size. Um, but so- yeah, so... I have to ask Morgan. I mean, you were obviously a, a spectator to yeah. to to a lot of this. So, you know, you you heard Ryan kind of you know lay this out. I'd like to hear you know your side of the story, so to speak. You know, what your thoughts were as all this was really transpiring and going on. Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, <clears throat> it was really fascinating to me from from kind of two perspectives. So the the first perspective was the anthropological side of things. So not necessarily like the archaeological information that we're getting, but also like the human aspect of it, because that's something we can never get again. You can't get that out of the archaeological record. And there's very few cultures in the world that still do any kind of big game hunting with primitive tools. So it was really neat to me to see kind of the the cooperation side of things between Ryan and his team Um but the preparation involved in in hunting an animal that is inherently dangerous to to try to you know spear and kill and try to kill with a you know modern weapon much less um, an atlatl. So and this these are things that we expect from from ice age cultures too as well that are that are hunting these animals. We know it probably wasn't an easy thing and that there was lots of stress and lots of um, difficulty involved in doing it. It wasn't simple. So that was a really neat part of it for me. I mean, I was also surprised at, at just how difficult it was to hunt these animals on foot. Um, I mean, yeah, we tried for a solid seven, eight hours to, to get one on its own and it was just not happening. I mean, um, we were trying to corral them into place. Like Ryan said there, you know, you'd think a 1,500-pound animal would kind of, like, stick out in the landscape, but it, they're actually, yeah, pretty good at, at hiding. And it was just like, where the heck is this thing? I mean, um, 
so that was a really amazing thing to me. I mean, and and just watching how how well they worked as a, as a small group. I mean, a lot of times we we think that people would need you know a group of 10, 12 um, ice age peoples to bring down a, a mammoth or a or a bison. But I was really surprised to see how well a, a group of of three worked. You know, I mean, and just how in the zone they were on all this. I mean, it was it was very clear that. You know, there was a lot of joking and stuff throughout the day, but when it came down to making it a solid effort on on getting this animal isolated enough to for Ryan to take a shot at, it was quite clear that these guys were they were weren't messing around. You know, they were trying to get this done, and and the level of concentration involved was pretty amazing to see. Um, but definitely the the kill. I mean, in the, in the archaeological side of things, looking at how because I'm looking at this from the perspective of, okay, this is an archaeological site that I'm watching happen. Like, I'm watching it be made. Because we have kill sites from mammoths and mastodons and bison. But we just have the archaeological remains. And, and I'm watching one take place right now. And I'm watching a site get created. So, yeah, I'm trying to, to record everything I possibly can. And and I, I was really surprised on just how lethal the Adelato was. I mean, it was incredible to me like ryan said i mean the first one 46 centimeters half a meter almost through this animal to the other side and then um the other one 54 centimeters into the animal into the opposite shoulder blade it actually traveled further into the animal than the length of the foreshaft so it continued to travel through the animal um just through momentum or velocity alone it was pretty amazing to watch just how well that worked in the hands of somebody who could place a dart where it needed to be placed to bring down an animal um i mean i was i was shocked that to to learn that hey you know maybe one person can get this done i mean it doesn't take a everybody and their brother to bring down an animal um and yeah i was really surprised by a lot of things i mean the the small projectile point for the most part i mean i talked to ryan a lot about the technology involved and you know as on the archaeological side of things we tend to kind of be predisposed to think oh you know if you're hunting a big animal you need a big point right that just seems illogical but the i mean ryan kind of dispelled that and he was like no i mean the size of the point doesn't really matter my variable is the dart you know and and, or the spear as as he's saying is is i vary the length of the spear and the weight of the spear to transfer more kinetic energy into a small point and that concentrates the momentum of the dart and and it it does a really good job of putting it through the animal. And, and based on what I saw, based on the distance between the ribs of this animal and, and based on the size of a lot of the, you know, the, the points that we find associated with these, uh, with these kill sites that we assume are points. I mean, I, I think we're, we're missing a lot of the, a lot of the record. And, you know, it's important to remember that in archeology, span we're finding what people leave behind. We're not necessarily finding what somebody used for something. And, and that was another interesting side was watching Ryan and these guys create stone tools to to butcher this animal and what they used to butcher it. Um, and they used these bifacial, large bifacial uh, knives to peel back the skin. And and it was remarkable to me that you know the the butchering so messy. I mean, it's it's just it's it's chaotic. There's lots of people moving around. You're you're you know peeling this back and you're moving this there and and it'd be very easy to lose one of these bifaces in, in the shuffle. Um, and in fact, we almost did. I mean, 
And, and so that was the really surprising thing to me to learn was that, you know, a lot of the material that we're finding in these kill sites is, is likely used to process the animal and has nothing to do with, um, with what was used to dispatch the animal because we actually recovered both projectile points that, uh, that were used to dispatch the animal and they were so well preserved. I mean, they had no knocks on them or anything. Ryan was like, yeah, I could just put these back on my four shafts and, and fire again. And, and so basically from, from start to finish, I mean, just the aspect of watching somebody cut away a bison hide with a flake and saying, oh yeah, this flake works really well to make the initial incision, but it doesn't work so well to peel back the hide. That's where the knives really come in. And, and just kind of recording all this, seeing, you know, where Ryan was to first strike the animal, where the animal moved, how he kind of corralled the animal, um, where it finally went down, what was not only used, but what was produced on site, because that is the archaeological signature of a, of a site, you know. Um, a lot of the stuff that you're producing, you, you might be carrying away the end products with you, but you're leaving behind the tiny flakes and the tiny chips. And, and that's why they matter, and that's why I was, you know, down in the snow trying to, trying to pick out each and every one of them. Um, but the, uh, yeah, the whole thing to me from start to finish was really like watching... A, a time machine in action. It was just really amazing to see. And to me, that that fills in that uh, metaphor or analogy I was talking about before, where I have a book that's got a bunch of pages missing, and then you show up and say, "Here's the rest of the pages." And it's kind of like yeah. opposite at that point, you know, where you're like, "Hey, we have a lot of this," and then I'm like, "Oh, here, I have the pages to that." Yeah, book. exactly. No, and, <laughs> and we put that together. Yeah, and you filled in a lot of stuff for me. I mean, as I said, I'm not a hunter. I'm not trained in hunting but i am very trained in archaeology um and i've spent eight years learning about this stuff and this one single hunt was enough to to shift my perspective on on a lot of this stuff because yeah i've never done it before you know and um and it's nice to kind of mesh both worlds of the you know the person who's an expert at at using these materials and hunting and the person who who sees what's left it's really nice to get those those missing pages put together to to form the whole thing And you mentioned that, you know, when you dig a site, that you're finding what was left behind. And and either it was left behind on purpose or it was lost, essentially. Uh, Because, you know, and you see from from our perspective, I mean, these are valuable tools. So it's not like people make these tools and say, let's use them. And then we're going to leave them here. They try to collect everything like, you know, a modern hunter, when he shows up, he doesn't leave his, his, his pocket knife, you know, laying on the ground. You know, it happens. People lose, lose their flashlight. They lose their pocket knife. Not maybe necessarily the flash, (laughs) unless it's off, you know? Um, (laughs) But you know, that stuff is, is really normal. uh, And that's comparatively what you're finding. So when people, and, and that's something that I remember you and I talked about quite a bit was, uh, you know, the large bifaces that they would find at these sites and thought, well, this big round nose, you know, Clovis or Dalton Point, you know, must have been what was used to kill it. You know, and to me, the, you know, I was like, I've done the penetration tests, you know, on pig carcasses and have failed to penetrate them with the heaviest spears that I can produce. But these little ones, they'll just glide right through. You know, but then when it comes to skinning, I want those big ones, you know, and these are tools that are worked down over in my in my experience. They're tools that are worked down over a period of time. And when a knife 
you know, it gets sharpened and it gets smaller and smaller. Next thing you know, I'm like, well, I'm just going to turn this into a projectile point and I build a platform up and I drive some flakes across it and I completely change that tool altogether. But even like the big flakes that we were knocking off for the incisions, just because we use that edge and they lose the edge from the abrasion on the hair doesn't mean that we just throw them on the ground. Like we gather those back up because I look at these and I'm like, well, now I can take these big, these big flakes and even though the edges, this like this, the the clean razor sharp edge is now dulled and it's no longer good for that, now I can just take this flake and biface it down into a whole nother tool. And so that's exactly the types of things that they would have done. They wouldn't have left a big skinning flake there intentionally and said, well, I broke this one off. It's not good for anything. It's a very valuable resource. So they're going to pick all this stuff up and repurpose it as they go along. And, uh, you know, like I've always said, I've told you, the, the bigger the animal, in my opinion, the smaller point you need to be able to penetrate that animal and to fit, you know, less chance of hitting yeah. a giant rib, especially on something like a, a mastodon or a, or a Columbian mammoth and, you know, even a bison for that point. You, the bigger the point, you know, the, the bigger chance of hitting something. I mean, yes, you can have better hemorrhage, but if you can't get far enough in there to really get that uh, penetration, that, that hemorrhage, uh, you know, then you're really against it. But those small ones, you know, even, you know, even though it took longer on this big animal, because the points were relatively small, one spear was all that was nutted needed. We could have sat down and, you know, in just a few more minutes, it would have been down all on, on its own. We just, you know, made that decision to put it down quicker because we had the ability to, and we wanted the extra data. And uh, I, I mean, it kind of put into practice a lot of the things that I see on my end from a practical application side and then I really enjoyed you know your ability to come in and look at it and say this makes total sense and many times too and I don't want anybody to think that hey I paid Morgan to say this or or uh, I you know say hey well this is my video you have to say what I want you to do in fact I didn't pay Morgan anything to come, yeah, to come yeah, do yeah. this I paid, I paid for his room and his board yeah. uh, at the place and that was it um, I'm very grateful that he volunteered his time and travel to come do this oh yeah of um, course and everybody for that matter they volunteered their time to come participate in this hunt it was a very expensive hunt as it was but i think everybody had you know had the hopes that we were going to do something great and i really think we did um but i told morgan many times over if there is something i'm doing that you're not seeing a comparison in, in an archaeological you know dig site a real dig site i want you to tell me because it doesn't necessarily change the way that i do it but it may alter the the direction that i approach it just because there may be a more efficient way to do it. And if he's like, no, we, you know, we are very certain with impact fractures and everything else that these great big points were exclusively used. And I would be like, well, then I'm going to have to come up with an atlatl that can put, you know, an inch and a half wide round nose Clovis point through <laughs> a mammoth. Cause right now uh, that's like trying to jam a beer can through a piece of drywall like it's just it's not supposed to go through it's not what the way it works but you know if you uh you know really slim that point down and you're throwing a really small thing she just slides right on through and uh so yeah to have him kind of uh, you know give some validity to the things that i've been practicing and saying you know this makes perfect sense you know because nobody really really knows i mean they have a collection of data of course and they can uh compile that and and make a really really educated guess on that uh pile of data but 
you know, for anybody that says no, that this isn't the way this is, this was done, uh, you know, I don't know anybody that, that was alive 10,000 years ago that can tell us. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think the, uh, so when I was, when I first started thinking about this, I was like, oh, I need to look at some comparatives, you know, I need to see how, how other archaeologists have studied something similar. You know, I, I looked, started looking through 50 years of archaeological research and, there, there's no actualistic studies like like we call it an actualistic study when you're actually doing something you know it's, it's this is how it would have happened so this is an actualistic study there was nothing like this I mean the only other thing that was even remotely similar was I, this guy hunted feral goats I mean in, in the 80s that was the only other publication I could find where it was live game and I believe it was an atlatl it may have been a bow um, but that was the only other thing I could I could find all the other studies um, worked on on a fundamental assumption, which you know we may need to reevaluate now based on uh, based on these findings. But that assumption was that these Clovis points that were or these big bifaces that that were hafting to the ends of thrusting spears would work, and the reason they worked is because. The other studies that looked at something like this, uh, one famous study looked at a, an elephant that died recently at a zoo, and so a lot of uh, a lot of archaeologists were knew that this animal was passing away, and they and they contacted the, the zoo and they said, hey, you know, when this animal dies, we'd like to do some some tests on it immediately after it's it's passed, and so th- when it died, they went out there and they they stabbed it with spears and and they used lancelet points on the end of thrusting spears and those are the kinds of studies that are available for this kind of stuff and and it's just a it's a fundamentally different assumption that you're fitting something on the end of a thrusting spear versus you're propelling it with an atlatl and based on what i saw on this hunt i mean that there's no way you would get close enough to use a thrusting spear on one of these animals i mean they scared the hell out of me like you know i i, I would, there's no way i'd get i was trembling in my boots just filming i mean i wouldn't go try to stab it so it was it's just this kind of fundamental assumption that we've been working on yes these large bifaces work well when you fit them on the end of a thrusting spear and you spear them into something that's not moving. But seeing that animal move and seeing how the herd reacts to, you know, a potential predator in their midst, it, it changes a lot. I mean, so it was it was amazing to watch. So we're we're getting kind of close to where we need to start wrapping this up. But I I did want to ask one clarifying uh, question uh, for for either of you, I guess. Sure. You know the um, aside from the aside from the camera equipment, was there any was there any other modern equipment used during this hunt other than the camera equipment? At one point in time, there was a a fault in my moccasins, in which <laughs> they used to have a a sole at the bottom, and okay. I removed that sole over a period of time. And even though I filled it with wax and bear grease, uh, I still managed to cram slush up into uh, my moccasins. And while I did trudge through with wet, slushy, snowy feet for quite a long time, there was about an hour in which I was like, nope, I have to put on a pair of boots. <laughs> 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 and that, that was when I was like, okay, I have to wear the boots. And, uh, and, I, and I regretfully will even mention in this, just because I, I really 
really don't like it. But if you if you watch hard in the video, you'll see a spot, and I'm wearing boots. <laughs> <laughs> but it's just it's the way it had to be. You know, I got to the point where I don't mind my feet being cold, and I don't mind them hurting. But when they're hurting, and then they stop to stop hurting, it's because yeah, I don't feel trouble. That, yeah. yeah. So I I was like, it's time. I have to switch them. So I put I put new socks on and put boots on for about an hour. And that hour was a very important hour, but um, I, I figured that that was small potatoes at the end of the day. That wasn't so that's your that's your Braveheart movie mistake <laughs> where the, the guy had to watch on or something. I, I've never actually been able to see it. I've heard people talk about it, so I mean, look for exactly. look for look for Ryan wearing modern boots. I mean, yeah, yeah. Full disclosure: I had a Columbia jacket and and beanie yeah. and and three pairs yeah. of socks, and so I I was no very pet. modern. Yes, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, so, camera gear stuff. They were they were all modern <laughs> yeah. for sure. It was just us and poor Keith was. Oh my gosh. We were wearing. We weren't even, you know, necessarily period correct per se. And of course, you know that's speculation anyway. Nobody really knows what existed at that point in time. True. You know, and I'm wearing brain tan pants um, that actually had quill work on the side, which is more like, you know, 1800s plains native style. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. that had that. But uh, my pants just were. I've kind of outgrown them, so to say. So I had to borrow somebody else's pants last minute, um, a good friend of mine's. And those pants fit me well. So, of course, you're going to see those, like, colorful quill work on the side, which I didn't much care for. But uh, I had, you know, pants on where traditionally they're shown where they were, like, a breech cloth and leggings. And that makes me question that as well because poor Keith was wearing uh, leggings and a breech cloth. And Man. he... He was wrapped up in an Al-Qaeda. <laughs> yeah. He was so cold, you know. But that was part of the realism to it also. And people would say, well, why are you dressed in costumes? I would get that on social media. And I'm like, well, when you kill an animal and use its brains to tan its hide and then you build clothes out of them, I don't really call it costumes at that point in time. Um, but uh, it, it brings in a certain amount of authenticity where now we also have to be able to move and function in this clothing and also endure whatever cold that these people would have been feeling. Now, of course, I do believe that their bodies were, would have been, you know, more acclimated or hardened sure, to the sure. to the scenarios or to the situation. But, you know, just it, it really, it was another really important piece uh, of that puzzle that came together. And it was, it, and, yeah, and it was almost like a, a study of the clothing in and of itself, you know, because it was neat to see kind of what did work and what didn't work, you know, like knowing that they probably had stuff that, you know, it was a lot more sophisticated towards cold weather hunting. It was almost like an experiment with seeing, you know, what kind of clothing worked. Because it was 26 degrees. I mean, it was freezing. This was definitely not normal conditions. So it was neat to see this stuff play out all pe- kind of authentic as it was. Yeah, Hollywood changes your your mind on things when you see yeah. it. And actually, I, I actually feel that their clothing was probably a lot more refined because they lived in it. Certainly, uh, yeah. You know, compared to where we're pushing stuff together and we're actually trying to leave it look a little bit more primitive because we don't want it to look very clean, cut, straight edge lines, you know, where yeah. they had the ability to cut with a stone flake, very nice edges. But if you walk out there in this perfectly preened set of, of buckskins, people are just going to tell you that, you know, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> you have to look tattered and, and beat down, which by the end of the hunt, buddy, we look tattered yeah, and beat yeah, down, <laughs> covered in blood it's and dead. everything. But. And, and I saw a few photos that you've, you've 
posted, Ryan, if if you don't mind and if you don't think they mind, you know, the, the pictures that I've seen, I can't remember exact numbers. I know there were at least four, maybe five people in some of those pictures uh, and most of them wearing, you know, um, uh, natural clothing. I'll leave it at that. You know, the, the buckskin clothing and so forth. Who all were the individuals besides uh, you and Morgan? Uh yeah, Morgan was was wearing more modern stuff. He wasn't part of the production per se, okay. uh, but he fit. He you know he he will be in the production. Obviously, he plays a very big role in it. Um, but for those of us that are in primitive dress that participated in the hunt, uh, of course there was myself, and then there was uh, R. D. Easterling, who is a, a good friend of mine, and he's an accomplished primitive hunter as well. Um, and then there's Keith and Jen Sires. And they have uh, Ramshackle Homestead, if you find them on social media. Okay. And, uh, yeah, they're they're very accomplished in their own ways as well. On Maybe not so much with the Atlatl per se, but uh, when it came down to choosing, you know, another, another hunter that I really felt would be an asset, I, I just was immediately like, I just got to call Keith and get him involved in this because he's really steeped in authenticity and pretty much anything he does, he does mostly uh, colonial flintlock stuff, but he's also well outfitted for, you know, nine, 10,000 BC also, if need be, because he brain tans everything and he lives, uh, he lives off grid and uh, a, a really uh, very much a homesteading lifestyle. So he's very much in tune to, you know, working hard for a living let's put it that way and of course his his wife uh has a lot of skills as well so she fit right in and it was important to me to have a woman involved also and although she wasn't involved in the hunt um you know and of course this kind of upsets the feminists as we go we had a nice argument on social media about that well why couldn't she spear the buffalo you know and it's like well historically i don't believe that would have happened you know we play to our strong suits you know and i can throw a spear harder than than jen can uh, and that's a more important factor. And, uh, you know, she basically, she built us a fire and kept it going and we were cutting up meat and she was just coming over and picking it up and cooking it for us and bringing it to us and anything that kind of needed done. If we needed a leg held, she'd come running over and, you know, she would join right in and she would skin and, and, uh, a very, very valuable asset, uh, to it as well. And, and I really wanted to show that and not, not that, you know, all women don't have the ability to hunt like men do, but, you know, they, their role is equally, you know, and sometimes more so important than the sure. man's role. Sure. So give us a little details about the video. When will it be available? Where will it be? Where will you be able to find it? Is there a name selected for it yet? I am not a hundred percent sure. Uh, 99% sure it'll be on my Hunt Primitive YouTube channel. Okay. And uh, we're still not even done with the filming. We still have to get uh, the Edgeware analysis back at the lab with Morgan. I uh, have a few more interviews to do with other experts. But it's it's going to be a pretty big production compared to my normal, you know, 7 to 10 minute uh, hunting videos that I put out. So, I mean, we're shooting. I'm not even, I don't even know how long it's going to be. I'm shooting for somewhere between a half an hour and an hour. I have no idea. Um, and I may even pitch it to, you know, like a bigger streaming company. However, I, they have no idea who I am, so they're probably not interested. Uh, but for the most part, I want it to be free for everybody to see. I don't do this stuff to say, okay, I'm going to hold it ransom and you have to pay me to see it. Now, that's not what it's about to me. It's about I want to get all of this content out to people for various reasons. So it's probably, like I said, 
chance it'll be on my Hunt Primitive YouTube channel. And when I'm shooting for late spring summer, if I could if I could put a tentative date of June 1st, I would. But if I have it done sooner, I will. But I'm also I don't want to rush through it and then regret later not taking the time to edit it out because uh, sure. it should. I want it to be, you know, uh, like my motto or my phrase, if you will, entertaining, uh, entertainment, education, and inspiration. So I, I want it to be very entertaining and educational. Uh, and I don't want to rush through it and bore people to death with it because it doesn't, you know, keep your attention. Well, I tell you what, since since we don't have that now, we'll, um, you know, I'll put definitely put a link uh, in the show notes to uh, to your YouTube site website. Uh, although I doubt many people uh, listening have not already been there, but I will include that. And once you have decided or you make an announcement, be sure to reach out to me and we'll definitely put a, a separate uh, post on the website uh, on the traditional outdoors website about this and I'll even mention it in a future uh, podcast as well once it is available okay okay sounds good I appreciate it and uh, and of course you can keep up to date also on uh, hunt primitive Instagram and uh, hunt primitive slash gills primitive archery on Facebook too so of course it, basically if you're looking for it you'll find it when it's out it's not I'm not going to keep it a secret I'm gonna put it in front of as many people as I possibly can. <laughs> And I'll do everything I can to help you do so. Oh, thank you. Well, gentlemen, it's been an absolute fantastic conversation and a, and a real joy. I think uh, we had a, a, a slight technical glitch in the middle, but I think I can edit that out. But during that, Morgan and I had another conversation. So <laughs> just a fair warning, everybody, you're probably going to hear from him on here again uh, on a different topic. But uh, yeah. Gentlemen, I, I really do appreciate you taking the time, and, and thank you so much for taking us along on that journey. Yeah, absolutely. It was a, a pleasure to be able to talk about it. Yeah, it was great to get some uh, great get some thoughts bouncing around. Thank you, gentlemen, so much. For everyone listening, we definitely appreciate you joining us. We hope you found this uh, information entertaining and useful. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast, and while you're out there, take the time, please, to leave us a rating or review. We sure do appreciate it. And we'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Take care, everyone.